a considerable part of our interpersonal interactions, or at least the initial determining portion, is about asserting the intention of our counterpart. Throughout the history of humankind, we have evolved ways of staying on the safe side. We relied on gossip within our tribal economy when trying to figure out an individual's relational track record and consequently the probabilities of a positive experience. If someone was to come from the outside of our closest tribe, we were smart enough to assume the worst and band together to chase this stranger away. In this fashion, over thousands of years, we have evolved a stranger danger bias. Once helpful, this trait has now become a limiting factor. In a global economy where the number of transactions increases as well as the need to share our resources, we must find ways to resist this bias and rely increasingly on cutting-edge engineering to design for trust. Hey, this is Innocent Mugenga, and you're listening to The Learnability Podcast, an exploration of how society interacts with technology and you. And this is an episode on designing for trust. There's a complete stranger sleeping in my living room. What if he's psychotic? My anxiety grows so much, I leap out of bed, I sneak on my tiptoes to the door, and I lock the bedroom door. It turns out he was not psychotic. We've kept in touch ever since, and the piece of art he bought at the yard sale is hanging in his classroom. He's a teacher now. This was my first hosting experience, and it completely changed my perspective. Maybe the people that my childhood taught me to label as strangers were actually friends waiting to be discovered. The idea of hosting people on airbeds gradually became natural to me. So here's what I pitch my best friend and my new roommate, Brian Chesky. Brian thought of a way to make a few bucks, turning our place into designers' bed and breakfast, offering designers to come to town a place to crash, complete with wireless internet, a small desk space, sleeping mat, and breakfast each morning. Ha! We built a basic website, and Air Bed and Breakfast was born. Three lucky guests got to stay on a $20 Air Bed on the hardwood floor, but they loved it, and so did we. And when we said goodbye to the last guest, the door latch clicked. Brian and I just stared at each other. Did we just discover it was possible to make friends while also making rent? The wheels had started to turn. My old roommate, Nate Bocharczyk, joined as engineering co-founder. And we buckled down to see if we could turn this into a business. Here's what we pitched investors. We want to build a website where people publicly post pictures of their most intimate spaces, their bedrooms, the bathrooms, the kinds of rooms you usually keep closed when people come over. And then, over the internet, they're going to invite complete strangers to come sleep in their homes. It's going to be huge. 
We sat back and we waited for the rocket ship to blast off. It did not. No one in their right minds would invest in a service that allows strangers to sleep in people's homes. Why? We were aiming to build Olympic trust between people who had never met. Could design make that happen? Is it possible to design for trust? You've probably heard the story of the beginnings of Airbnb, how the founders struggled in the dawn of the sharing economy, as told by Joe Gebbia on the TED stage. Now having over 500 million hosted nights through their platform, it's safe to say they eventually succeeded with designing for trust. In essence, they managed to utilize those evolved innate traits and turn gossiping within our tribe into helpful reviews on their global platform, enhancing the sense of community by aiming to create connections beyond the transaction. But how do we design for trust when there is no community, when the interactions are purely transactional and happen once every few years, and when you can't refer to a track record, when the stakes are high and your expertise is low, like when buying or selling a used car, for example. To avoid the horror of a haunting, lousy deal, we have come to rely on what we're supposed to believe is an impartial broker, the car dealer. When in reality, this go-between is a partial gatekeeper with a vested interest in increasing their own business, skimming a little bit off the top from both the seller and the buyer. Cardia, the Stockholm-based startup, is embarking on a journey to solve this problem. Realizing that a digital platform, with all the needed partnerships, can do a better job of mediating between the private buyer and seller. They offer the same benefits of an impartial valuation, seamless transactions with down payment options, automatic ownership transfer, warranty, and insurance all to the friction of the cost of a car dealer. Similarly, the Finnish tech startup, Bluk, is now expanding into the Swedish market with its complete digital real estate brokerage service, offering algorithmically-based valuations, virtual apartment viewing, and digital signing. They have so far been trusted to sell over 1,500 apartments in Finland to a total value of $350 million. We are still in a relatively early stage of these software-driven solutions to transactional pains. Nevertheless, we can assume they will be showing up in countless industries and tearing up arrangements of legacy and mistrust, encouraged by a desire to decrease friction and increase sharing, which in turn supports a future where we might be able to get more from less. If these services manage to stay aligned with these goals and remain beneficial for the consumer, the company and the worker in this new gig economy, the main hindering factor will be our regulatory systems not catching up. Speaking of regulation, friction, mistrust and participation. An exciting experiment has been going on in Estonia 
for the last 15 years, as they drafted the legal framework to conduct internet voting in 2002, and only three years later, online voting became a reality. This Baltic nation, home of 1.3 million citizens, is one of the most connected countries in the world, with approximately 91% of the population having access to internet at home. More than 90% of the voting age population holds an ID card, which includes a digital signature permitting the citizens to sign electronic transactions to provide proof of authenticity, declare their taxes online, and use the internet for their everyday banking transactions. As mentioned, this is still considered an experiment, although so far a successful one. Besides the technical security aspect, the necessary steps to design for trust in the systems are defined as follows. 1. I-voting is an optional addition to the traditional paper voting system, which means they're not enforcing this system. They're rather complementing what exists to start with. 2. Early voting and multiple voting encourages interaction, being able to, during the early voting stage, make a decision, think about that decision and know that you will be able to come back, might encourage the citizens to actually study up on their decision one more time. 3. A digital vote is inferior to a paper vote, meaning that if you've placed a digital vote and then later go to the physical voting station, that paper vote will outweigh and erase your digital vote which protects the voters and the system from buying and selling of votes or being bullied into selling a vote. And number four, if that is not enough, any voter caught selling their vote is heavily penalized and will face a heavy fine. Current rates of digitalization and globalization outpace our innate capabilities for interacting on the scale of millions rather than the dozens of interactions our wetware, our brains, has evolved to manage within a tight-knit tribe. An increased need and opportunity arise for those who design software that compensates for our deficiencies. Software designed for trust. Let us know what this has you thinking about. Or send us your questions as related to this episode or any topic related to learnability. As you might have seen, you're now able to send in your questions in audio form through our website. So please do. Visit learnability.online and you'll find descriptions 
on how to go about. A question that came in through email on our last episode on incubation was about the separation or the difference between incubation and procrastination, which is a very good question. And I think we can use framing here both ways. So, without making an excuse, you can probably use feeling uncreative and not being able to push through as a reason to step out of the stage of preparation where you've been working at the problem and step into incubation. And it may be that a reason that many of us are afraid of taking a period for incubation is that we associate this with procrastination and we don't want to procrastinate. But if you've spent enough time in preparation, you have been doing the work. So instead of just pushing on and not getting anywhere, it might be time to let the ideas incubate. But be careful of not using incubation as an excuse for your procrastination. I guess how you would weigh that is weighing the time of preparation versus incubation. And I think maybe what's important is making sure that you stepping away from the preparation stage, from from the work, is an active choice with a set time when you get back to the problem. Hopefully having it illuminated and being able to validate and move on. So I guess that would be my take on the difference between incubation and procrastination. Until next time, stay curious. I want to give you a sense of the flavor of trust that we were aiming to achieve. I've got a 30-second experiment that will push you past your comfort zone. If you're up for it, give me a thumbs up. Okay, I need you to take out your phones. Now that you have your phone out, I'd like you to unlock your phone. Now hand your unlocked phone to the person on your left. That tiny sense of panic you're feeling right now (laughs) is exactly how hosts feel the first time they open their home. Because the only thing more personal than your phone is your home. People don't just see your messages, they see your bedroom, your kitchen, your toilet. Now, how does it feel holding someone's unlocked phone? Most of us feel really responsible. That's how most guests feel when they stay in a home. And it's because of this that our company can even exist. Okay, you can hand your phones back now. (laughs) So now that you've experienced the kind of trust challenge we were facing, I'd love to share a few discoveries we've made along the way. Now, what if we changed one small thing about the design of that experiment? 
What if your neighbor had introduced themselves first with their their name, where they're from, the name of their kids or their dog? Imagine that they had 150 reviews of people saying they're great at holding unlocked phones. <laughs> Now, how would you feel about handing your phone over? <laughs> <laughs>